This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. Today, we focus on a man named Rodrigo Diaz, a man who would one day become known simply as El Cid. We heard his name pop up already, but not quite in such detail. Rodrigo's story parallels those we've heard about already, such as Fernando I, Alfonso VI, Sancho II, and even Yusuf ibn Tashfin. And in the larger context of the medieval world, Rodrigo Diaz lived alongside figures such as William the Conqueror, Robert Guiscard, Pope Leo IX, Harold Godwinson, Yaroslav the Wise, and Harold Hardrada. Though a contemporary of these towering figures, Rodrigo Diaz defines the time in his own unique way. And over the next few episodes, I want to try to do him justice in the grand scheme of the 11th century. Okay, so today's episode, episode 67, is entitled El Cid Part 1, Mercenary. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Nobiliori de genra ortus, quod in castella non est illo maius. These are the first whispers of the origins of a man known at the time, 1,000 years ago, in Iberia, as Rodrigo Diaz. The name Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar outshined most others in the, on the peninsula, save for the names of kings, such as Fernando I, who was Rodrigo's king when he was born, in a small village a handful of miles from Burgos in Castile. The most accepted year of Rodrigo Diaz's birth is 1043, but it's not set in stone. In fact, as far as we know, there are no truly concrete documents stating his date of birth. So those words at the top of the episode there, what do these words actually say? Well, they're pulled from a Latin poem called Carmen Campi Doctoris, and these words translate to quote-unquote he is sprung from a more noble family. There is none older than it in Castile. So the he mentioned is indubitably Rodrigo Diaz, and he started off in the lap of luxury, it seems. Well, not quite luxury of the royal flavor, but he certainly wasn't raised in obscurity. Rodrigo's father was a favored knight of Fernando I's, and Fernando's father before 1037, when Fernando I rose to power, before all of his consolidations and power grabs we've talked about. And the fact that the Diaz family only increased its wealth and land holdings shows that Rodrigo's father continued to serve King Fernando I at a considerably high level of competence, and this is actually pretty important. This afforded young Rodrigo an enormous opportunity that the vast majority of folks in the entire medieval world simply didn't have. Sufficient food, comfortable dwellings, and access to knowledge of all sorts. Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar was born in the tiny village of Vivar, hence the de Vivar part of his name, just a handful of miles again from the larger town of Burgos in north-central Iberia, what was then called the Kingdom of Castile. But it wouldn't take long for, as I referred to already, King Fernando I of Castile to change his domain. And it seems young Rodrigo was a sponge for adventures and stories of past heroes 
and in medieval Iberia, it didn't matter whether the heroes were Christian or Muslim. Rodrigo, like so many of his peers, soaked them all up. A quote-unquote hostile source to El Cid, as Richard Fletcher refers to him in the quest for El Cid, Ibn Bassam gives us a reliable glimpse into Rodrigo's childhood when he wrote a thousand years ago the following. Ibn Bassam wrote, quote, It is said that books were studied in his presence. The warlike deeds of old heroes of Arabia were read to him. And when the story of Mohalab was reached, he was seized with delight and expressed himself full of admiration of this hero. End quote. I apologize, but I... I just couldn't find much about this Mohalab fella, except to say he was a famous Arab general back in the earliest decades of Islam, just after the Prophet's death in 632. This Mohalab guy must have been a boss because he fought for three different caliphs, the Rashidun, the Umayyad, and the Zubayrid caliphs. And he created a dynasty of prominent Muslims extending several generations beyond him. I'm sure there are sources out there, but I again was unable to locate them. But apparently this Mohalab guy lived a life of Herculean obstacles to overcome and Odyssean adventures to become lost in, all with an Alexander-type bravado, because for a kid who would grow up to be Spain's national hero, it would take stories like these to fuel that intense fire that he most certainly was born with. Anyway, again, back to young Rodrigo here. This kid soaked all of these stories up. Fletcher focused on Rodrigo's more Eurocentric influences when he says, quote, Rodrigo's taste for heroic deeds must have been implanted at an early age through Bible stories and legends of the saints, tales of the Spanish past and pride and the exploits of his ancestors, martial virtue, tempered by a certain crude Christian morality, was what 11th century noblemen sought to inculcate in their sons. End quote. Riding horses, swordsmanship, swimming, dancing, these were all prerequisite trainings for a young man who sought to one day rise to knighthood. This all started early on, but the serious training in military strategies and combat began at age 12, Rodrigo, no doubt, rode out on certain forays with his father, and as weapons and armor were hardly inexpensive, he would earn new pieces over the course of his first several years in such a role. But his very first piece was a shield. And it's at this point that I want to deviate from the narrative just a bit to give the typical Iberian knight his due. Rodrigo was very much a part of this military culture and would certainly be affected by each and every detail shared here. So, so have him in the backs of your minds as you listen to the following. Young Iberian knights were taught to use a shield first and foremost. Using a shield for both defense as well as offense was key to battle. These shields could be kite-shaped or round, but each could offer protection at a premium for those who knew how to hold it correctly. Fletcher describes the rest of a Castilian knight's armor and weaponry. He says, quote, The armor was made up of mail coat, helmet, and shield. The lorica, or mail coat, was a long-sleeved, knee-length garment, sufficiently loose to be worn over a padded tunic beneath. Horsemen, and sometimes foot soldiers too, had it slashed below the waist, before and behind for greater ease of movement 
Sometimes the lower half took the form of knee breeches. The more expensive mail coats were made of thousands of tiny steel ring, rings riveted together, giving the effect of coarse knitting. Cheaper versions consisted simply of overlapping steel rings sewn on to leather. Plate armor was still a good two and a half centuries away. The helmet was a conical iron or steel cap with a, with a projecting piece, the nasal, to give some protection to the nose and sometimes with ear flaps or cheek guards or a curtain of mail at the back to protect the neck. It was padded within to soften the shock of a blow to the head. Shields were made of either wood or boiled leather stretched on a wooden frame and strengthened with metal hubs or spokes or studs or all of these. The sword was the weapon par excellence, a long double-edged blade designed for cutting and slashing, ideally suited to use from horseback against an enemy on foot. Swords were often richly decorated about the hilt and pommel. Sword belts, too, were often decorated." End quote. Now, there was a technique that was brought by the Umayyad artisans way back in the 700s when Abd al-Rahman created his Emirate of Cordoba and invited all of his old Umayyad loyalists to Iberia. You might remember this on the podcast. There was a technique of blade making from Damascus that was highly effective and quite a sight to behold, actually. The technique itself was called Damascene. Now, Damascene today can mean simply pertaining to Damascus, as well as referring to a type of jewelry making. But the Damascene swords in question refers to a specific sword making technique that folds hundreds and hundreds of super thin layers of iron until it achieves a razor sharp edge on both sides and a thinner yet incredibly durable center. This constant overlaying of thin layers of iron with all of those cooling and warming periods during the sword's creation achieves an aesthetic quality too. Waves are typical of these Damascene swords so popular in Iberia a thousand years ago. And Rodrigo and every other Iberian who used such a blade owe their very weapons to the influx of Syrian artisans who poured across the Mediterranean three centuries before. Now, to be sure, this was a new type of sword at the time, but the purpose is, of course, the same as any sword to have come before it. Much of my understanding of medieval weaponry is still developing, and I owe a lot to the fantastic website MedievalWarfare.info, including little tidbits like this. It says, quote, The word sword comes from the Old English sword, spelled S-W-E-O-R-D, from a Proto-Indo-European root, swer, that is S-W-E-R, meaning to wound or to cut. You know, I geek out on things like etymology, but I understand it's not everyone's bag. But I urge those who eye roll through word origins because so many connections can come from words and language. But I digress. So this website has something interesting to say about the purpose of the sword, too. Quote, The basic intent and physics of swordsmanship have remained fairly constant through, through the centuries, but the actual techniques are vary among cultures and periods as a result of the differences in blade design and purpose. Unlike the bow or spear, the sword is a purely military weapon, and this has made it symbolic of warfare or naked state power in many cultures. The names given to many swords in mythology, 
literature, and history reflect the high prestige of the weapon. End quote. Now, there have been many swords to have been given names throughout history. The vast majority of these names have been lost to time, of course, but back to the website's emphasis on the weapon, it's quite telling how much respect and reverence the owner and wielders of such blades had toward them. Here's a couple examples. The Zulfikar sword is a prime example of a blade still revered today. This scimitar, or scimitar, was owned by a 7th century Muslim named Ali ibn Talib and gifted to him by Muhammad himself. Talib ended up using the blade to conquer many Arab communities and spread Islam around Arabia and into northern Africa. This sword has become the symbol for Islam in many ways, including the flag of the Ottoman Empire. With this sword, Ali would earn a brief stint as caliph too. And another one and I hope I pronounce this one <laughs> correctly as well. Joyeuse was the name of the sword held by none other than Charlemagne. Currently on display at the Louvre in Paris, this blade looks amazing with its golden hilt and pommel, and the carbon dating on the blade itself dates as far as at least the 800s, the early 800s, so the one on display today very well could be the actual Joyeuse, the blade that Charlemagne carved out carved out what would become the Kingdom of France roughly 1,300 years ago. It's pretty incredible that we might still have that around. But when it comes to Rodrigo Diaz and his sword, he too would weld a legendary one. In fact, though one holds more attention than the other, Rodrigo Diaz would actually hold two legendary swords by the end of his life. Now, it's a bit of a mystery when he received the lesser of the two swords, called La Colada, though he most likely had it along and uh, all along, and odds are it became legendary because of Rodrigo's legacy and not because it earned some mysterious backstory, like some other swords have. As for uh, the other of Rodrigo's legendary swords, though, we do know where it came from. The semi-legendary account, The Song of El Cid, shows him swinging it in battle and holding it close by his side in negotiations along with La Colada. It was and still is called Tizona, and Tizona is on display at the Museo de Burgos in Burgos, Spain, just a few miles from where Rodrigo Diaz was born. Legend has it that Tizona came to be Rodrigo's when he defeated King Yusuf of the Taifa of Valencia, which would put this around 1094. So if anything, Tizona has been seen less as a loyal servant of Rodrigo's during his decades-long battle for legitimacy and much more as a symbol for Christian Iberian supremacy over the Moors on the peninsula. And the name Tizona might offer a clue as to this legend's purpose as well. Tizona has traditionally been translated to firebrand and might symbolize the burning away of Islam from the Iberian Peninsula, which, as we'll see by the end of this little string of narratives here, might just show how Rodrigo Diaz's life has been twisted just a bit to fit the mold of a national hero, a devout Christian taking on the hordes of Muslims infesting their land. Either way you look at it, Tizona is an impressive sword, with intricate markings and engravings upon the hilt and wrist guard, as well as flowing metallic waves on the blade itself. Now, La Colada was his sword for the long haul, though. And again, we're not exactly sure when he received it, but we know he had it by his first engagement in the early 1060s. 
La Colada was a simple arming sword, a straight double-edged blade made of iron, and it, had, and it had a simple pommel and hilt with a small wrist guard. The arming sword was a type of sword quite common throughout Europe between the 11th and the 13th centuries, because though arming swords would still have their purposes on the battlefield, well, if anything, because they became cheaper as the 1200s came to a close, there would be a new innovation in sword making that would produce the world's first long sword, which is the stereotypical sword we think of when we think of medieval knights, but let's not get that far ahead of ourselves here. So Rodrigo Diaz, in the 1060s, was just getting started, and when he rode into battle, he would have his arming sword, La Colada, at the ready to swipe, cut, and swing at foot soldiers as he blazed past them, perched upon his well-armored war horse. His shins would have been protected by mailed trousers as well as the long chain mail he wore over his tunic. A smallish, round shield would hang onto a strap on the back of his right arm while riding. But when La Colada was drawn, his shield was grasped in his left hand, most likely. This right here is the image of the man who would one day become a living legend. And that legend is what I want to flesh out next. Now, if I may, the, the great French philosopher and pioneer travel writer, I should add, Alexis de Tocqueville, as he journeyed his way around a few decades old United States, once described history as, quote-unquote, a gallery of pictures in which there are few originals and many copies. And I think this applies to historical figures like Rodrigo Diaz. There was the man. He lived a life as a knight during a tumultuous time of uncertainty and, and huge change, and he no doubt became a formidable figure during his time. But then, as his story was told and retold and retold and well, retold, it began to change. Odds are you're probably thinking of another person in history where the original story may or may not be known, but the story told today is without question a legend. Spoiler alert, Rodrigo Diaz Vivivar would one day earn the nickname El Cid, but from its original Arabic it meant the boss or the champion. Thus, its Spanish translation of El Campeador is one you'll, rec you'll also recognize, probably. But we need to know this legend of El Cid so that we can accurately see how it, simply, it had simply become a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. El Cantar de Mio Cid is the name of the epic poem that seems to be the formalized written basis for the legend. Some believed it emerged as a response to the wave of epic poetry sweeping through France in the first decade or two of the 1100s. This poetry brought back semi-legendary figures such as Charlemagne and Roland, giving a cultural cohesion and sense of Frankish pride in an otherwise disjointed and fracturing kingdom. With the rise of such, dare I say, national epics, which coincided with a relative peace and lull in the action down in Iberia following the death of the once-living legend Rodrigo Diaz, well, it was only a matter of time before the minstrels got a hold of Rodrigo's story and took it for a whimsical spin. Knowing the minstrels, who in Old Spanish, which the Christian Iberian language was forming during the 11th century, were known, these minstrels were known as Hugliara, and how they performed their stories 
as much as spoke them. El Cantar de Mio Cid was probably a part of the oral tradition at first. Oral tradition, though worthy of our respect, and used for millennia prior to the 11th century, certainly lends itself to a less-than-trustworthy reputation. I mean, these minstrels, or hugliaria, in the act of entertaining their crowds, could very well have altered details here and there, depending on the people he was performing for. And as a young boy, he listened to stories of old, this Rodrigo, of adventures, of dangers, of catastrophe, of heroes, who went on vast epics full of villains and hostile gods and people to be saved. He gorged himself on a steady diet of these tales, completely unaware that he would one day be the center of his own tale, a tale that would lead to his name becoming a symbol of a nation's pride and its past. And thus the legend of Rodrigo Diaz, El Cid, was born. Now, the story itself begins when Rodrigo Diaz was banished from the court of King Alfonso VI. So this dates the introduction of our story as after the Battle of Graus, after the Crusade of Barbastro, and after the death of his benefactor, King Sancho II. Rodrigo had already served Alfonso for a number of years, as well as, as I already said, his brother before him. But Rodrigo was accused of swiping a bit of the king's treasury, those taxes, or parias, given by the taifa of Seville. And such an accusation was a reputation killer, even if false. You know, he flees with a contingent of loyal men to Burgos, according to the legend, but no one, by royal decree, was allowed to let Rodrigo or his men into the confines of their homes, nor were they allowed to feed him or or to give him encouragement. In fact, at least in the story, to prove their loyalty to the crown, they outwardly showed only enmity toward Rodrigo and his men in an effort to overtly prove they supported the king's choice of exile. But Rodrigo, the story notes, could see the sadness in their eyes as, having grown up so close, Rodrigo was one of their own, and the townspeople of Burgos said one thing, but they felt something entirely different. Now, there was one man, a vassal and a friend, named Martin Antolines de Burgos. Martin devises a plan to trick the treasurers of Burgos into giving Rodrigo enough gold to pay the men who keep his company. And it seems a defeated Rodrigo at this point was back in the saddle with fresh life. As Rodrigo and his men approached the edge of the kingdom of Castile, the kingdom he and his father spent their lives so far protecting, he dreamed of the archangel Gabriel, who gave him words of encouragement, saying Rodrigo's legend was just beginning to grow. Now, according to the story, Rodrigo Diaz was just a nobleman from Vivar, a knight in the service of his king, and a seasoned veteran of military engagements. But at Gabriel's urging, Rodrigo crossed the Castilian border into the Taifa of Toledo. Now, if you're a student of Joseph Campbell, or Carl Jung even, then you'd probably recognize this as the crossing the threshold portion of the hero's journey. Rodrigo is leaving the world of the mundane, or the familiar, and entering the world of mystery, the lair of the dragon, so to speak. His future lies away from the Shire, you could say. Well, this is him leaving the Shire. Now, crossing the border, central Iberia became drier and harsher, but Rodrigo had new life, 
a vigor only seen in legends of old, the ones he devoured repeatedly as a boy. He embarked on various missions to build his stature. He was an outlaw, by God, and he would act as one for the time being. He raided Moorish towns throughout the Taifa of Toledo, gathering and growing two important things, gold and a reputation. He bleeds Toledo dry, but knowing that Toledo sends Las Parias, or protection money, to King Alfonso VI in Castile, well, that meant that Alfonso had sworn his protection to Toledo. And when his band of banished knights took an entire town, Rodrigo knew he must sell it back to the Moors, because Alfonso would surely not allow such a victory to stand without some sort of reprisal. Otherwise, what was the point in Toledo sending all that money to him? Rodrigo and his men hightailed it across Toledo toward the east. In the Halon Valley, located about midway up Iberia, along the Mediterranean coast, a coastline called Costa Blanca, today near the city of Alicante. This was an interesting place to take the story as it pinned Rodrigo Diaz between the taifas of Murcia to the south and a Castile-protected Toledo on the west, as well as Zaragoza to the northwest. Now, to the north was the Christian kingdom of Aragon, and a little sliver of coastline had access to the French county of Barcelona. This meant that Rodrigo had planted himself within the taifa of Valencia. The king of Valencia wasn't too happy about Rodrigo's actions inside his taifa, so he sent two of his most trusted and experienced military commanders to the Halon Valley to deal with this small band of meddlesome Christian exiles, but Rodrigo defeated them both with a surprise attack. After the battle, Rodrigo considered his options, and he decided he might be in over his head at the moment. So he packed up, sold another town back to the Moors, and headed south. He sets up camp on a high hill outside the town of Teruel, today known as El Pollo de, del Cid, because of it. He decided to send a trusted companion to King Alfonso with a bounty of treasure as proof that he is still loyal to the Castilian king. This would actually go a long way, according to the story, to fixing the damage to his reputation and his honor. But he then moves northward toward Barcelona. It was at the time being co-ruled by a twin named Berenguer Ramon II, who was suspected of killing his twin brother, Ramon Berenguer II. Yeah, you heard that right. And his four-year-old nephew named Ramon Berenguer III. Whew, okay, might want to rewind that one to get those names right. Now, Rodrigo couldn't give a rip about who, who was who, and he took that first guy, Berenguer Ramon II, he took him as prisoner. It happened after the Battle of Pinar de Tevar, or Battle of Tevar Woods, where Count Berenguer Ramon II teamed up with local Moors, far outnumbering Rodrigo. But, well, legends don't become legends for running away from a fight. After losing and becoming Rodrigo's prisoner, the Count of Barcelona went on a hunger strike, swearing to never eat again while in custody, even if death be the result. Well, this big bad twin nephew killer guy lasted three days and gave up when Rodrigo invited him to his table for a meal. The Count ended up giving quite a truckload of gold to Rodrigo before Rodrigo sent him back home and then moved on. Okay, so there is more to the legend. We will get back to the legend. We're kind of weaving in and out of it between that and reality. 
um, over these next few episodes. But I wanted right now to shift away from the legend, um, though the reality of it isn't terribly different here. There's one little caveat in reading the legend, though. El Cid's legend states that Garcia Ordonez pointed his finger at Rodrigo, siphoning gold from the tributes owed to Alfonso VI. You remember that from the beginning. Well, this is true, but the timing is a bit off, so I wanted to clarify a few things. During the Cabra campaign in 1079, which is the name given to this specific collection of Parias from Taifas in the far south, Rodrigo Diaz was sucked into, or I suppose suckered into, depending on which source you believe, a small war between Seville and Granada. See, Garcia Ordonez, Rodrigo's envious foe already, was collecting parias from Seville's neighbor, the taifa of Granada. Well, Garcia Ordonez and Granada marched towards Seville's border, and the king of Seville offered to pay Rodrigo and his men to defend them. Rodrigo, never one to pass up a paycheck, accepted the offer, and he led them both, uh, his, his army as well as Seville's army, toward a castle called Cabra, hence the name Cabra Campaign of 1079. Now, three hours later, Rodrigo is walking on a battlefield strewn with corpses from Seville and Granada, though far more Granadans. He took numerous wealthy and influential Granadans prisoner, including Garcia Ordonez. And then Rodrigo sold them back and then bragged about it. And this is what led Garcia, Garcia Ordonez to run crying to his king, Alfonso, and claiming Rodrigo Diaz was skimming a bit off the top. But there's no real evidence to prove such a claim, especially since Rodrigo was already paid handsomely by Seville for his services as a mercenary. Well, two years later, in 1081, a raiding party from Toledo raided Rodrigo's lands and caused quite a bit of damage and concern. And Rodrigo Diaz, not one to back down, struck a massive blow against Toledo. So it seems like the legend conflated these events and kind of, you know, wrap them all together into one nice and tight package. But that makes sense for readers and for entertainment purposes too. And I think whenever we approach a legend, we need to have a certain amount of grace toward the author. There's weaving together a narrative, and then there's deliberately misleading the audience. Something tells me that the legend behind Rodrigo Diaz wasn't composed with dishonesty in mind, at least not in any sort of, you know, evil sort of way. You know, to clarify things, I suppose we could say that Rodrigo was on a routine collection mission of tributes when he was hired to defend Seville. He was victorious, which embarrassed his enemy, Garcia Odonez, who promptly spread rumors of stealing from the king's coffers. Rodrigo's reputation suffered for the next couple of years until the year 1081 when his lands were attacked by folks from Toledo. He retaliated, thus violating the agreement between Rodrigo's king and Toledo, which sent Rodrigo packing. There it is. That's probably the most accurate retelling um, of the legend. Now, I'm not so upset, though, when I have to sort things like this out when reading a legend or, or a primary source from long ago. I think both texts, records and stories, have a very important place in our look at the world that was because they serve different purposes, to chronicle as opposed to entertain. 
Now, moving ahead, after the Battle of Tevar Woods, Rodrigo Diaz was on top of his little world. He was at the head of a devastatingly capable army of loyal knights, and he had just toppled the expansionist machinations of the Count of Barcelona. Catalan, that is, the region of Iberia in the far northeast where Barcelona lies. So, Catalan dreams of expanding into Muslim lands to the south, they were real. But after a humiliating defeat to Rodrigo Diaz's lesser force at Tevar Woods, not to mention the Count's even more humiliating capture and ransoming, well, these dreams were quite simply dashed. But (laughs) something interesting happened here. See, after Tevar Woods, it seems Rodrigo was injured in the battle and was held up on his way to Zaragoza for negotiations. Count Berenger Ramon II arrived in Zaragozan territory, and he waited for Rodrigo Diaz to arrive. The Zaragozan king, a Muslim named Al-Musta'in, was much more an ally of Rodrigo's than Berenger Ramon II's, as the latter was, you know, invading and all. By the time Rodrigo arrived, it seems cooler heads had prevailed and the negotiations went fairly smoothly, all things considered, but it was probably a pretty awkward few days there. See, Count Berenger Ramon ceded to Rodrigo Diaz all the lands he held outside of his county of Barcelona. But wait, <laughs> these lands, weren't, weren't they stolen from Muslim taifas such as Zaragoza? So yeah, that arrangement wasn't going to last. And I failed to see how a man as bright as Rodrigo Diaz would have not seen this. But what it did do was it stopped any progress Barcelona had made into outside lands. The Battle of Tevar Woods and the subsequent negotiations that pretty much checked Christian aggression into Muslim lands was one of Rodrigo Diaz's greatest accomplishments. And it also smacks in the face of the legend that will evolve shortly after his death, a legend that morphed the mercenary Rodrigo Diaz into a symbol of Christian superiority over their Muslim neighbors. A legendary story that we will continue on the next episode when we step back and zoom out on larger Iberian happenings from the late 1070s to the mid-1080s. Rodrigo Diaz and his persona, El Cid, will watch the events of the next episode with great interest, even popping in and out of the action from time to time, but he will nevertheless play incredibly important roles throughout, even if it's in the background. On the next episode, we detail a few things, such as the relationships between Christians and Muslims in Iberia, as well as between Andalusians and Almoravids. But we will culminate in an incredibly underrated conquest on the peninsula that arguably sends just the right amount of shockwaves across the medieval world, Christian and Muslim alike, to initiate one of the most cataclysmic and enduring legacies of the last 2,000 years of history the fall of Toledo, and its aftermath. Thank you for listening. Until next time.